Well, growing up in the 90s with a name like Daniel meant that there was only one thing that people called me. Uh, And it seemed like every time that I met someone new, no matter who they were, when I told them what my name, they immediately responded with this nickname. And the funny thing is, every single person pretended like they were the first person to say it to me. Uh, And it wasn't just even the new people that I met, it it was my family, it was my friends. In fact, for some reason, this has continued into the future, and I haven't been called this since yesterday. Some of you may know what it is, but every single person in the 90s named Daniel at some point or another has been called Daniel's son, right? Daniel's son, just yesterday. And most of you are probably aware that this nickname comes from a popular 80s movie named The Karate Kid. Okay, it was Mr. Miyagi calls 16-year-old Daniel LaRusso this name throughout the movie, and it's stuck ever since. Uh, And if you're unfamiliar with the movie, the basic premise of the movie goes something like this. Daniel and his mom have just moved to Los Angeles from Newark, New Jersey, right at the beginning of the school year. And as the new kid in at his school, Daniel begins to find uh, new friends and begins to, to try and find his place at this school. The funny thing is he winds up befriending a young woman named Allie Mills, who happens to be one of the school's lead cheerleaders. And as you know from movies like this, of course, the lead cheerleader has a boyfriend who is uh, uh, athletic and who, uh, who is willing to stand up and doesn't like any other guys being friends with her. And her boyfriend is no different. In fact, he is a member of one of the local karate dojos that him and his friends are members of. And because he doesn't like the fact that Daniel is friends with his girlfriend, he decides he's going to continually torture and beat Daniel up uh, until he stops being friends with her. But one day when they're beating him up, the, the maintenance guy from Daniel's apartment named Mr. Miyagi steps in to help him. Daniel was so impressed by what Mr. Miyagi had done, he asks him to teach him karate so that he could defend himself in the future. So Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach Daniel how to do karate and invites him over to his house so that they can begin the training uh, immediately. So Daniel goes over to Mr. Miyagi's house and he is surprised that when he gets there, training doesn't commence immediately, but instead he's put to work. Daniel begins to paint the fence, to sand the floors, to paint the house, and of course, to wax the car. And after four days of seemingly meaningless work, Daniel finally gets so fed up with it, the scene in the movie changes to Daniel is chasing Mr. Miyagi around the backyard, ranting and raving about how I'm supposed to be learning karate and you're sitting here treating me like a slave, telling me that I have to wax your car, paint your house, paint your fence, and sand the floors. He has had enough of it. And so Mr. Miyagi, who's just walking around doing his own thing, stops at one point and says, no wax the car. And so Daniel starts doing these different things. And while he's showing Mr. Miyagi that he knows how to wax a car and sand the floor, paint a house and paint a fence, Mr. Miyagi begins to throw punches at him. And what Daniel realizes is that he is able to block all of these punches because of the work that he had done. And so while it wasn't the work that Daniel wanted to do, it was the work that Daniel needed to do in order to understand the basics of karate. You see, in order for Daniel to be able to defend himself against Johnny and his friends, it was essential for him not only to learn the basics, 
but it was these basics of karate that served as the foundation for everything else that he did. In fact, had he not learned these basics or had he failed to practice these basics, his karate would suffer. And this is exactly the problem that Jesus calls out the Pharisees for in our passage tonight. As Pastor Michael has already pointed out in this series, to be a Pharisee was an honor, right? They had an advanced knowledge of scripture. They understood Jewish practices inside and out. And from the outside, it looked like they had it all together. But there was a problem. They had neglected the basics. They had missed the basic thrust of scripture, And so as we continue our series tonight discussing the seven woes of Jesus to the Pharisees, we will look at the fourth woe that he pronounces on them. So my message tonight will take place in two basic parts, which you can follow along in the handout that you were given as you came in. The first part, we will examine exactly what Jesus says is the basic thrust of Scripture. What are the basics? And second, we will look at three things that we can do when we forget the basics, when we get off track. What are three things that we can do to get back on track and to remember the basics? Because just as it was crucial for Daniel to know, understand, practice, and continue to practice the basics, it is important for us not to neglect the basics either. So if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Matthew chapter 23. We will be looking at chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. We'll be spending a little bit of time here this evening, and then um, for a portion of it, I'm going to be quoting from different places in Scripture, and I ask you, you can just listen and kind of follow along with me and write those down to, to look at a little bit later. But let's look at chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. It says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so the, the woes here in chapter 23, all seven of them are actually written using a literary device known as a chiastic structure, okay? And this device is used as a way to place emphasis on a certain theme in a select passage. And so this device, it basically follows a kind of parallel pattern where point one parallels point seven, point two parallels point six, Point three parallels point five, and then point four is the central theme around which all of these others circle. And so this fourth woe here tonight is the center of this structure. The Pharisees have been accused of failing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They have been zealous for good, yet causing more harm than they have good. They've misused scripture in guiding others. And here in this fourth woe, we see that Jesus accuses them of failing to understand the basic thrust of Scripture itself. And because they failed to understand the basics of Scripture, they have failed to faithfully guide others. Because they have failed to understand the basics of Scripture, they have been zealous, yet have caused harm. Because they have failed to understand the basics of Scripture, they have failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And all of this comes because they failed to understand the basics. Jesus says to them in verse 23, You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. 
You see, the tithe was actually an old tradition that began with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. And then when God gives the Israelites the law, it was part of the law to give a tenth of all of one's income back to God. And so it was apparent that the Pharisees took these instructions very, very seriously and even, even tithed small garden herbs, such as, uh, garden herbs and spices such as mint, dill, and cumin. The thing is, it wasn't a specific requirement that these three things had to be given back as part of their tithe. And so what this shows us is that the Pharisees were so determined to follow this law as carefully as possible, they didn't even want to overlook the smallest plant because they read a passage in Leviticus 27 that said, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. But here's the thing. Tithing this mint, this dill, and this cumin in and of itself is not bad. That's not what Jesus gets upset about. You can look at the end of verse 23. Jesus, Jesus even tells them, you ought to have done those things, but without neglecting the others. That is, without neglecting the basics. You see, the Pharisees' desire to follow the law with diligence is commendable. However, the way in which they practiced the law was flawed. They overemphasized every minute detail of the law while neglecting the most basic elements of it. Such, and, and because of this, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You see, the Pharisees had become so preoccupied with the finer things of the law that they had neglected the basic thrust, that is the basic heart of the law. I love how one commentator described this error. He said, Jesus does not find fault with them for what they did, but rather for what they had left undone. What was it that they had left undone? Well, let's look at the middle of verse 23. Jesus tells them, you have neglected, or you, have, you tithe mint, dill, cumin, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so it is justice, mercy, and faithfulness that work together to comprise the basic thrust of the scriptures. But understand this clearly. It is not justice over mercy and faithfulness. It is not mercy over justice and faithfulness. It is not faithfulness over justice and mercy. It is all three of these elements that work together comprising the basic thrust of scriptures that the Pharisees had neglected. So it's not the Pharisees' tithing of mint, dill, and cumin that Jesus condemns, but rather it is their failure to pursue justice, mercy, and faithfulness that Jesus condemns. And in verse 24, Jesus uses a helpful word picture to get his point across. He says to them, verse 24, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, but, but to the Pharisees, they would have understood it. You see, the gnat was actually one of the smallest of unclean organisms, according to the book of Leviticus. And as such, it was something that they should have avoided. But in an attempt to avoid the small unclean organism, Jesus says those same people swallowed a camel, which was one of the largest of unclean animals. One commentator put it this way, in their eagerness to avoid a tiny defilement, the Pharisees are polluted by a huge one. 
And I fear that many of us are guilty of the same thing as the Pharisees. We have neglected the basics. We have become concerned with things such as what media that we consume and, and others consume that we neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We have become so concerned with who we should vote for that we have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We have become so concerned with the way in which one seeks justice that we have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We have become so concerned with the clothes that we wear or other people wear that we have neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We have become so concerned with the gnat that we swallow the camel. Yes, those things are good things to pay attention to. They are things that we must pay attention to. But it becomes a problem when we become so focused on those things that we neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And I believe that many of us have neglected these things because we don't actually understand what Scripture clearly teaches about these issues. And so let us take heed the words of of the prophet Micah. What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to seek mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So what I want to do now is I want to look at these three things. What does the Bible teach us about justice? What does the Bible teach us about mercy? And what does the Bible teach us about faithfulness? Because we can't get back to the basics unless we know what the basics are. Now, they say in Chicago we have two seasons. We have summer and we have construction, right? (laughs) And, and it seems as though construction on the Eisenhower has been going on forever. Uh, and the sad thing is that that's the, that's the road that I have to take to work every single day to get to my job in the south suburbs. I take the Eisenhower and then I merge onto the Dan Ryan and I go south for about 20 miles. And when they changed the traffic pattern last week, that really messed everything up and it got really, really bad. But the other day I was driving home uh, and traffic was particularly bad. Uh, in fact, what should have taken me about 20 or 25 minutes to get to the, to the interchange back from the Dan Ryan onto the Eisenhower took me almost an hour to get there. And if you've been on that interchange from the Dan Ryan to the Eisenhower, you know that it goes from two lanes down to one with a fairly big shoulder on the side. And so I was exhausted by the time I was going home, so I was just trying to merge into traffic peacefully because I always drive peacefully in Chicago traffic. I never get angry. And so I'm like trying to merge peacefully into the, into the uh, one lane when all of a sudden a car goes flying past me on the shoulder ahead of everyone after where the two lanes have merged and cuts in, cuts us all off, and makes the, the backup even worse. So I immediately was like, oh, it's okay, just no. I didn't do that at all, right? I immediately got angry. I wanted him to have flown past a cop who was going to pull him over, write him a ticket, or take his license away so he could never drive again because we don't need people like that on the roads in Chicago. It's bad enough. What I wanted was uh, what I thought was justice. What I wanted was retribution, But is it a faithful reading of Scripture to say that justice is to be equated with retribution? So let's take a brief look uh, through some various passages in Scripture to see what it has to say about justice. 
And this idea of justice, the reason that we all desire justice, that we want justice, really begins within the first chapter of the book uh, of, of Genesis. The very first chapter we begin, we find the bedrock of this biblical notion of justice. This bedrock is this, that that we desire justice because we are all created in the image of God and therefore all humans are equal before God. This means that we all deserve to be treated equally with dignity, no matter your age, no matter your race, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter what country you live in, no matter what city you live in. Because we are made in the image of God, we deserve equality or we are equal before God. And when that gets violated, we get upset. But as the story of scripture continues, what we see is sin enters in by Genesis chapter three, sin enters and completely violates the sense of justice that we had before. Our now, our sense of right and wrong is messed up. Whereas before Adam and Eve may have sought to to seek the prosperity of the other, sin causes us to redefine good and evil so that we no longer look out for the other, but rather we exploit others for our own gain. But as we know, the story of Scripture is, is a hopeful story. And God doesn't allow us to remain within this broken system of injustice. Rather, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 9, we see God tells us that uh, he calls Abraham and his family, and he says this, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Doing righteousness and justice. This is not a phrase that probably most of us are familiar with, this idea of doing righteousness. Normally we talk about it, we think of you are righteous or you, you are not righteous, not about doing it. So I want to take a minute and look at what do these two things mean? What does it mean to do righteousness and to do justice? Well, I submit before you that in our modern theology, we have falsely dichotomized these two words. For instance, in the New Testament, the words for righteousness and justice are are not two completely distinct words, in fact, but they share the same root. They share the same root word. They come from the same root. The implication of this is that the meaning of the word righteousness and the meaning of the word justice are so intertwined with each other in such a way that to pursue one without pursuing the other does a disservice to both. I love how one Chicago pastor so eloquently put it. He said, righteousness is the root of justice, and justice is the offspring of righteousness. And he continues, this is what makes the claim of the gospel so scandalous. It is that we who are sinners are now through the shed blood of Jesus Christ made righteous before God and have peace with God. We have been justified. That is, righteousness has been credited to our sin-depleted accounts. And at the cross, God got justice and we got righteousness so that now we who are in the church ought to be found fighting for justice. And so this this biblical notion or this biblical idea of justice really has two elements to it. The Old Testament uses two kind of two words to to describe this idea of justice and doing righteousness. It uses one word, uh, mishpat. Mishpat carries with it the idea of punishing the wrongdoer and caring for those who received unjust treatment. But it also uses another word, zedekah, 
which carries with it this idea of taking care of the vulnerable and doing things in order to make sure that mishpat is unnecessary, in order to make sure that we don't have to punish a wrongdoer or take care of someone who has been treated uh, with injustice because uh, zedekah means that we are doing things we have to, putting things in place to prevent injustice from even happening. And so biblical justice is about making other people's problems your problems. It's about standing up for the oppressed. It's about seeking the best for all humanity because all humanity is created in the image of God. It is about standing up against the unjust and caring for the recipients of injustice. And this is what Jesus means when he says, not but a few verses before our passage this evening, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why is it that this idea of justice makes it into, into Jesus's list of basics? Well, the answer to this question is very simple because it reflects the very nature of God. It reflects the very nature of God. Psalm 68 verses four through five says, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalts before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy ambition. And Psalm 146, seven through nine says this, who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches out for the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And so as those who have been redeemed and declared righteous and just by God, we now have a responsibility to seek this out for others. In fact, Proverbs 31 verses eight through nine tells us, open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is why Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 25, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So Jesus said the Pharisees have not only neglected justice, but they have also neglected mercy. So now that we have a basic understanding of what scripture says about justice, let's now look at this concept of mercy. Now, most of us have probably heard the classic Sunday school definition of mercy, that is not getting something you deserve. Well, I think that is correct. I think that the, the definition that scripture gives us for what mercy is, is much more complex and nuanced than this. For instance, our English word for mercy is actually translated from many different words in the original language. In the Old Testament, mercy is commonly translated from the Hebrew word hesed, that is, loving kindness. And this is the main theme, actually, of the book of Ruth, in which the young Moabite uh, Ruth sacrifices what she has in order to take care of her mourning mother-in-law, Naomi. But in this story, Ruth isn't the only one who practices this kind of loving kindness. Boaz, a relative of Naomi, practices, practices this loving kindness as well by giving up everything he had in order to seek the prosperity of Ruth and Naomi. I don't think we understand that when Boaz said he would marry Ruth, she didn't join his family. She didn't join his estate. He gave up his estate and took on the estate of Naomi's son. He gave up everything 
for Ruth and Naomi, for their prosperity. And Boaz is a kind of messianic figure who, who foreshadows the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, who in his loving kindness towards us sacrificed in order to seek our prosperity. In both situations, this loving kindness was given regardless of whether or not it was deserved. The New Testament uses a word for mercy that's really a combination of two Hebrew words, including the word hesed, or loving kindness. And so it carries with it the idea of compassion to one in need or helpless distressed. And so the biblical concept of mercy really is loving self-sacrifice, seeking the prosperity of others, regardless of merit. Let me say that again. The biblical concept of mercy really is loving self-sacrifice, seeking the prosperity of others, regardless of merit. And thus, mercy and justice go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. If you think you have justice, but you have not mercy, all you have is retribution. All you want is selfish gain for yourself. And if you think you have mercy, but you have not justice, well, I don't know what that is, but it's not what the Bible describes as mercy. So Jesus tells the Pharisees they first neglected justice. They've neglected mercy. And third, they've neglected faithfulness. And the word here translated faithfulness is most often used as a reference to a faithful relationship with God. And the prophet Micah, I think, makes this a little bit more clear in chapter six of his book when he says, seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. In other words, the Pharisees have become so concerned with personal piety and religiosity that they have failed to walk faithfully with God. They have neglected their relationship with God. Now, we've all probably heard this phrase before, that there is such a thing in marriage called the honeymoon stage, right? It's this stage that we use to refer to this period of time, usually it's about a year or so, when a couple first gets married, where it seems like nothing could go wrong, and the only person they want to be with in the whole world is their spouse. But as we know, that honeymoon stage comes to an end, right? There are bills to pay and cars to fix, kids to feed. All of these things are important things that have to be taken care of, but all of these things should never get in the way of your relationship with your spouse. They tend to, but they shouldn't. In fact, this is why it's a good idea when you have a relationship with someone in, in a relationship such as marriage to make sure that you set aside time uh, weekly or monthly or however often you need to to make sure that you spend time specifically focusing on your relationship with that person. And this is how it should be for those in a relationship with God. Justice and mercy are great things, but if you do these things and you fail to walk with God, then none of it matters. The pursuit of justice and the love of mercy as a reflection of the nature of God will only create a lasting effect as you are walking faithfully with God. How do you think you can faithfully pursue justice and faithfully pursue mercy if you don't know God or if you have forgotten him? You can't. You can't. So, my, uh, my favorite season of the year is, is arriving, hopefully. I don't know. Fourth winter might show up. But I love summer. Summer is my absolute favorite time of the year. I love the heat. I love the sun. And I love to be out in it. 
Uh, and one of my favorite things to do in the summer is to play softball. I love playing softball. And here, we have a league here at the church, and I've managed a team for the last, this will be my fifth season managing this team. And a couple of years ago, I noticed something. I noticed, and we're kind of nerdy about it. We have a website, and we keep our stats and everything on there. It's totally meaningless, but it's great. So I got pretty upset because I noticed that my stats started dropping. I wasn't playing as well as I used to, and I wasn't playing as well as I knew I was capable of playing. And so I tried all kinds of different things to fix it. I wasn't hitting it far enough, so I started swinging harder. I was like, I know I can get it over the fence. I'm going to swing harder. And I started doing worse, and I started doing worse. And so finally, I asked a friend to, to watch me, to watch my swing, to help me figure out what was happening. What was I doing wrong that I had begun to drop, that my skills, that my, that my stats had begun to drop? And so he watched me, and we figured out that what had happened was uh, I, I had become so comfortable with my skills at swinging a bat that I had begun to neglect the basics of how to swing. I was dropping my shoulder rather than swinging level. I wasn't watching the ball come all the way to the bat. I was watching where I wanted the ball to be. So, I'm, you know, of course, I'm looking over the fences. I wasn't stepping towards the pitcher. I was stepping away from the pitcher. And all of these things added up to, the, to, to me not playing well. And so when he pointed that out, what I did was I, I had changed what I was doing. I picked up my shoulder. I was swinging level. I was stepping towards the pitcher. I was watching the ball to the bat. And you know what happened? Those stats started going back up again. I started playing the way that I knew I was capable of playing. And the reason that that was, was because I learned to get back to the basics. I remembered what I had to do, the fundamentals of swinging a bat. And I was able to play as best as I could. And the same thing goes for us as Christians. If we are to be a faithful representation for God in this world, we cannot and we must not neglect these basics like the Pharisees had done. However, I fear that many of us, including myself, often neglect these things. So if we need to get back to the basics, what are some things that we can do to do that? So tonight I want to give you three things that I think are essential for us in order to get back to the basics. Okay, three things in getting back to the basics. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment was to love your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Our love for others is the fruit of our love for God. Okay, let me say that again. Our love for others is the fruit of our love for God. And so the first thing that we need to do if we are going to get back to the basics is very simple. We need to love God. Okay? If we are going to get back to the basics, we need to love God, which means you need to check yourself because if you're failing to love others, then maybe you don't love God as much as you think you do. Return to scripture, return to prayer, ask God to expose any apathy in you that, that you might have towards him and expose any calluses you might have towards others. But let me tell you this, your love for others really is the fruit of your love for God. When you love God, you will love others. Now, back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was extremely popular. There was a, uh, an accessory that was super popular. It was this little black bracelet, and it had the, the acronym WWJD on it. Okay, probably I had one. I know all my friends had one. Um, they were super popular. They haven't, uh, no one wears them anymore. Once in a while you see them, and it's 
weird when you see them now, but we, everyone used to wear them. It had WWJD on it, and it served as a reminder when you looked at it. If you're not familiar with it, the WWJD stood for What Would Jesus Do? It's probably become one of the most well-known Christian cliches of all time, which makes us want to ignore it, right? To ignore that cliche. But let us not fail to recognize the profound truth in that little acronym, What Would Jesus Do? Let me say this, if we want to get back to the basics, we have to love God. But if we want to get back to the basics, we also have to look to the example of Christ, okay? If we want to get back to the basics, we have to look to Christ. The gospel is literally a story about Jesus seeking justice, about Jesus loving mercy, and about Jesus walking faithfully to God and to other people, And so we need to look to the example of Christ to understand what it looks like to get back to the basics. Jesus fed the hungry. He befriended the outcast. He healed the sick. He died on the cross and he rose again so that we, the unrighteous, the undeserving, might be declared righteous, might be declared just. So we have to love God. We have to look to Christ And the third and final thing we must do in order to get back to the basics is something that should be simple, but it's to listen to others. We need to listen to others. James chapter one tells us, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. However, our current culture is not defined in this way. In fact, I would say that we are slow to listen and we are quick to speak and quick to become angry. If someone holds a different view than us, we are quick to tell them that they're wrong and they have to believe what I believe. And if they don't, we get angry and we yell and we fight with these people. In fact, we cut those people off and we don't want to have relationships with them anymore because they disagree with me. But listen to this. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Listen more, talk more less. How do you think you're going to be able to pursue the prosperity of other people if you're not taking time to stop, to close your mouth, and to listen? You're never going to know what someone needs if you can't listen to them. So I encourage you to, to, before you speak, listen. Listen to what they have to say. You cannot expect to be able to seek justice and mercy if you aren't quiet long enough to hear what someone needs. So like I tell my students at school all the time, Be a better listener. So Daniel LaRusso had to learn the basics of karate if he was going to be able to defend himself well. He had to learn to wax the car, to sand the floor, to paint the fence, and to paint the house. Well, if you are a Christian, if you are going to represent Christ well in this world, you must learn to remember the basics. You must learn to seek justice. You must learn to love mercy, and you must learn to walk faithfully with our God. Let me pray for us. God, we see that your heart through Scripture is to seek justice, love mercy, and to be faithful. So I pray now that, that, our, that our ears were open to, to listen, that our hearts are ready to be obedient. Help us. to to love what you love. Help us to seek what you seek, God. Break our heart for what breaks yours. It's in your name we pray.
Amen.